We're glad you're joining us here at NRCC Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, too. Go to our community's Facebook page, post your thoughts. Reclaiming treasure, reclaiming things that we have lost, things of great value that have been lost to the sands of time. First, a quick report. So, we do not have assigned agreements yet, so anything could go wrong. <laughs> and we have seen how that happens, so this is probably. But enough progress was made this week to give you a report. We've got some great people in the community. Cherie is one of them. Cherie works at the YMCA at the state level, or just called the Y now at the state level, so she knows people, and she's been advocating on our behalf for a long time. And on Monday night, I got an email from the Alexander Y uh, right over there on Hillsborough Street confirming that they are working on a lease for us. Uh, what a relief. We are not going to be live streaming from my kitchen table and meeting for, in a park once a month. This is better. Now, funny thing, 16 weeks of nothing, and after that, Monday night, Tuesday night, I met with the deacons of a church that I've been talking to for over a year. And when the meeting started, they were understandably skeptical because they have seen our website and they are a little concerned that we might be a cult. <laughs> a little concerned that we might do Satan rituals on campus sometimes. So I explained what we're doing, how we are building a church for uh, not just unchurched people, but anti-churched people. I explained our complicated relationship with religious words and why we don't use very many of them, church and Christian, even God. I explained why, and that took a little while. I also found out in the course of that meeting that they had had another church on their campus, and it was not a wonderful experience. There had been, reading between the lines, at best, some rudeness, I think there might have been a little bit of bullying going on. So, after I addressed their skepticism, I described the kind of relationship I imagined that we could be partners even though we were very much not like one another. I've gotten to know their minister. I really like him. I've gotten to know the vision that he has for their uh, congregation. It's like Temple, a small congregation on a very large campus, and it's a good vision, and it's a healthy vision. It's a start slow and build strong relationships, be mutually supportive, and care for the city around us kind of vision. It's not our vision. It's not focused on anti-church people. So I told them that the potential wonderfulness of his vision if you could bring it to be, would be a great, great thing. But I also wanted them to recognize that ours is also a good vision. And I told them, we do not want to be somewhere where we are seen as suspect. We've had enough of that. We don't want to go somewhere where we would not have a mutually supportive relationship. And I said to them, the whole reason I keep trying to find a church to share with is that if two or more congregations can get behind one another and support one another, we can both survive a very difficult time in history and a very difficult time in religion in particular. Because there are a lot of churches that are not going to survive the next five years. And in five years, our congregation is going to be in a time of transition. I told them, I hope to be at Common Thread until the day that I die. But in five years, we're going to be transitioning away from me being the primary leader of Common Thread. And I do not want, at that time, five years from now, for you to have failed. 
Because if you fail five years from now, we're going to be looking for another place to meet. So we're looking for stable, we're looking for secure, and we're looking for long term, which means we would have a vested interest in you thriving because we would need you to be here in five years or in 10 years. So I said to them, if we partner together, even though we are very different, we could us take some of the financial pressure off of you and you could take some of the stability pressure off of us and we could champion one another's success even though we are very different from one another. And if we do that, I said, then we can both be here for the long term. If we do that, then we can both become institutions with staying power. And I think that they thought that was a good idea <laughs> because after a year of not moving on the idea, they've been moving very rapidly this week. <laughs> Julie and I went down to meet with their minister and with the chair of their deacon board uh, earlier this week. We talked about the space we'd need. We talked further about what the relationship could look like. So maybe we have two options. We don't know for sure yet. Now, I'm not telling you the name of this church yet because in their bylaws, the next step for them would be to have a whole church vote where their whole congregation votes on a Sunday. And I didn't want their church to know in advance to find out because I'm talking about the church. I want them to be able to find out from their leadership. So we made some good progress this week. If the church in the end eventually says, no, I'm going to be disappointed because I would rather be in the kind of relationship that we have had with Temple. But if they do say no, or if they say yes, but they don't say yes on time, because we are not going to lose this Y option. After this long, we're going to take the option if we need to. We either have a very good place or a very, very good place. So those are our options. Both are good. So should know in about a week or two. I'll let you know as soon as we know. Anything you want to know? Yeah. That happened this week. And this morning, Dr. Mike said, dude, you owe me money. I made you sound so good. <laughs> so yeah, we did. Uh, we, that was one of the first things that we did. There's, they've also, they got three or four referrals that we've given them. And I know all of them think highly of us. We've made some real missteps. When we first got here, we were not very good neighbors because we had just been kicked to the curb by our denomination. We were a little bit prickly. Their grace and their kindness to us eventually won us over. We've actually become really good neighbors. We work really hard to be good neighbors, and I think all those referrals will uh, affirm that. Dusty? Uh, roughly, where are they? <clears throat> uh, both of them would be within five or seven minutes of here. Is that a hand, Amy? No. Just scratching your head. All right. Anything? All right. So I had today's lesson in mind a long time ago, but I didn't have the title uh, in my mind. And I got the title from a conversation that I had with Joe Farmer a month or two ago. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Joe. There's Joe. He and Margie aren't here today. I called him in earlier and he sent me some pictures. He said, yeah, I can't be there, but here, put some pictures up. Let me tell you a little bit about Joe. He's a music teacher and he's a really good guy. And when you get to know him, you're really going to like him. 
He and Margie have been part of our community for about a year, and I've been talking to him about music in our community, more about that on another day. But in one of those conversations, Joe said something that shaped the direction of the lesson that we're beginning today. So let me give you a little background. I've been talking to Mariah for quite some time about the music because she's all about our community's music. She's also a music teacher. And we've been talking about what the future is going to look like uh, once we find a place and we know we're going to live. And it's been good conversations. But as happens, Mariah's life has taken a turn for the busy in this upcoming year. And she's already involved with our teenagers, doing a wonderful job loving them. So she's taken a step back from what we were talking about, which was how to reclaim the human art of singing together. Because it turns out that Americans, and church folk in particular, have lost the treasure of singing together. I thought it was just our church for a long time, but it turns out we are actually living in a post-music-making culture. We consume music like never before but we've lost the skill for and the comfort with making music together. So that's going to be one of the weeks in this lesson, reclaiming treasure, reclaiming singing, why we lost it, what we lost when we did lose it, and how we could reclaim it. So after Mariah told me about her upcoming year, knowing that Joe is also a music teacher, hey, Joe, let's talk. (laughs) So we did, and we have been, and... I don't know what our moving schedule is going to do to us because things are starting to go in flux right now, but pretty soon Joe is going to teach us and our kids and our teenagers the art of relearning how to sing together. Mariah will be in a helping role, but she won't have to be organizing the process. Now I bet just hearing that, that we're going to reclaim singing, there is already some reluctance in the room. (laughs) because I know about that tension that we have around public performance of music. So I hope you'll suspend judgment because I really do think it's a deeply human treasure and I think it's worth reclaiming and uh, after we have, I bet you're going to be glad we did. But that's not the point for this week. The point of this week was the conversation that I had with Joe and how it informs what we're doing. So as we're talking, we eventually talked about songs. Uh, And you know that our community has been rethinking religion for a long time, and a lot of the ways that we thought at one time are embedded deeply in our songs. So I was talking to Joe about why I don't use the word God very often. I will instead talk about the indwelling divine, or the interior light, or ultimacy, or the unknowable unknown, you know, the the words that make folks think we're a cult. (laughs) So we talked about how words often lock us into a story, and when we're trying to rethink the story, we often have to rethink the words, especially religious words like God or spirit or save or redeem. These words have a beautiful meaning, but they often get associated with a very unbeautiful story. So, for example, when God is a human-shaped being, usually male, usually stern, And when God judges us for our sin and potentially threatens this prospect of eternal damnation, then when we use the word save, it starts to mean one thing. But if we shift our thinking about God, the way we imagine God, and God becomes the soil in which we are rooted, and we cannot be separated from soil any more than tree can be separated from soil, that we are always drawing resource from soil as long as we are alive, always rooted in it, then the word save, 
means something very different. And how we get our heads around the meaning of our words often requires getting our heads around the core narrative that informs us. So, Joe and I are talking. And I can see that as we're talking, he's getting a little bit troubled. <laughs> because if we're going to learn to sing, we're going to have to sing songs. <laughs> and there aren't a lot of songs that say, you know, God is a little bit like dirt. <laughs> And if Doug keeps playing the language police, which I do and have done for some time, how in the world are we ever going to learn to sing because we can't do this song and we can't do that song and we can't do this other song? So, hey, Joe, make some bricks, but sorry, you don't get any straw. That's a Bible reference. <laughs> so that's when Joe said something that resonated deeply with me. And the thing that he said became the framing construct for this lesson. Doug, if those words do have rich meaning, even in this uh, new reimagined narrative, then maybe we actually have to go back and reclaim those words. Could we, he said, reclaim some of those words so that we could reclaim some of those songs so that we could learn to sing? Now, I waffled a little bit and said, because I am the language police in our congregation and I do take care of that. So I did waffle a little bit and said, well, in this maybe and not in this. But then as I was walking away, I realized there's a lot of things we need to reclaim. It's going to take some work to reclaim them, but we need them. It also reminded me of the historical process that human beings go through that make reclaiming a recurring process that we have to come back to again and again. We have to constantly be assessing and constantly be reassessing what we've lost and what we need to be about reclaiming. And that's the lesson that we begin today. How to reclaim the treasure that gets lost simply because we make some adjustments within a society, important adjustments. So that's the lesson. Now, for the rest of today, I'm going to be telling you a story. Uh, and then when we get to the end, we'll have the questions. The story is going to demonstrate a principle how cultural pressures, social pressures, cause us to adjust our priorities. Good, glad we do. But usually cause us to also over-adjust. And when we do, we gain one thing, whatever the problem was we were trying to solve, but we often lose another thing. So how do we reclaim the thing that we lost? How do we reclaim the ancient treasure? And... I'm thinking about just one of those themes today, and it's the, I'm going to give you a story that demonstrates that principle using the uh, practice of joining. So we'll be thinking about our experience of joining things or not joining things, most likely not joining. And we're going to see if we can see in our own experiences the cultural headwinds that we don't normally watch, we don't observe, they just happen unconsciously. What were the cultural headwinds that either drew us into joining or kept us from joining? The often unseen, unspoken norms that influence us as we make our decision, shall we join or not join. So be thinking about an example from your life. We'll talk about that afterwards. Okay, here's the story. Joining is a thing that we need to reclaim, but that's not why I'm telling the story today. I'm telling it to highlight for us how important it is that we see the often unseen historical and social drivers that influence us, because if we don't see them, they'll keep working on us 
but we won't be prepared to push back against them. And it's quite possible we will miss treasure that we really want. Uh, so joining is an essential component of the healthy life, essential component of healthy spirituality, community. It's just that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, now in a moment, I'm going to put up a slide. You might want to take a picture of it, so you might want to have your phone ready just in case you do want to take a picture of that. This would be the time to get the phone out. So uh, joining is not on the list of things we're going to be talking about, things that we need to reclaim in this lesson. But I do want you to see that if you join or do not join, you do it in no small part because of forces that you never know are happening. So here's the slide. It's a book that I've mentioned a few times in the last months. I really do think it's an antidote to a lot of the pain that we all feel. Uh, our nation is very divided. Our nation is very susceptible to misinformation right now. We are more committed to tribe than we are to truth. And this is a book of good news. It's a heavily documented book. Uh, and it's a book of hope. So I do hope you'll read it. I'm going to talk about it to demonstrate the principle. Why we must be reclaimers of treasure. All right. You may have heard the parable of the commons. It's a simple story. It uh, goes like this. In the middle of the villages, with all of the people living around it, there is a commonly held grazing land. And if everyone in the village grazes one sheep, the grass will replace itself. It'll be a sustainable system. Well, it turns out in this commons, uh, if a few people in the village graze two sheep, two things will happen. Number one, they will get wealthier, the people who graze two sheeps, and the grass will still replace itself. And the, the grass will still be sustainable. But when other people see a few people grazing two sheep and getting wealthier, then they decide that they too will graze two sheep. Now the grass is not sustainable. Now the whole system collapses and it collapses for everybody. The parable of the commons. The parable is a study in two competing principles that are always in play in the course of human community. They function in a tension with one another, the priority of the individual and the priority of the collective whole. Well, so back to the book. That bell curve that you see on the cover of the book, it describes a journey that our nation has taken over the last almost 100 years. Putnam is a statistics guy. I think he's a Harvard guy. Lots and lots of statistics in this book about how Americans have behaved for the last 120 years. How we behaved economically. How our tolerance for pay differentials, those who work on the factory floor and those who are CEOs. How much have we been willing to tolerate? How big a gap between those two? How have we behaved politically? When we have been tribal and when we have been cooperative. Socially, how, when we have been isolated and when we have been uh, in community. Uh, culturally, when we have been culturally fragmented and when we have been in solidarity with one another. Regarding race and gender, he's got chapters on each one of those. When we have worked for the well-being of all, uh, everyone included, or when we've worked just toward the well-being of me and mine. And in all those areas, drawing from all that research and all those statistics, a trend emerged. It's the bell curve. Contrary to stories that we often tell ourselves about American history, from the late 1890s 
through until the 1960s, there has been a clear directionality in the way our nation has functioned and operated in our nationally shared mindset. With every passing year from the beginning of that curve, except for that little blip that drops down that was related to war, we have focused more every year than the previous year on social solidarity. We focused more on the common good. We focused more on looking out for one another, and we focused more on the commitment that we all carry to one another. Now, it's a good book. I think if you read it, it'll give you hope. But something happened around the 1950s. You can see the curve changes. And the thing that happened is our commitment to more and more and more and more community took a slight shift. And it became a commitment to conformity. In other words, we're not just for one another. We now kind of insist that we be like one another. If you think about the McCarthy era, it was kind of the embodiment of that. Are you one of us or are you one of them? Because we are all alike and we all think the same way. So we made this shift around the 1950s from community to conformity. Consequently, community, what was becoming conformity, started to feel stifling to some people, began to feel constraining, began to suffocate anyone who didn't fit into the mold of conformity that we celebrated when we were practicing community, and that was usually white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So in the 50s, popular culture began to rumble with discontent. If you're old, you might remember the beatniks. <laughs> the beatniks were beginning to push back against the accepted cultural norms or the rebel, uh, rebel without a cause, or the man in the gray flannel suit, or down with the man in the early 60s. People who didn't fit into the conformative norms were feeling their non-belonging, and they began to insist on a place in society. Women who didn't fit into the stay-at-home expectation of women at the time, black and brown people who didn't fit into the white people norm, gay and lesbian people, Jewish people, disabled people, special ed people, all began to push for a place in society, began to push for belonging. The folks who were not part of the acceptable American norm felt the pain of not being accepted and began to push back. And that began to take off around the 60s. So <clears throat> around 1963, the author's research shows, those trends that had been increasingly moving up from the 1890s tipped. And we began a long run, 60 years now, where every year, more than the year previous, we began to focus more on the individual and a little bit less on the communal. It's what human beings do. We go down one path, we realize there's pain associated with that path, and so we make a correction. We adjust, we react, we go another way. That's human, that's healthy, that's good. But it's just as human, not just to correct, but to overcorrect. Not just to adjust, but to overadjust. And not just to react, but to overreact. 1960s were the height of American joining. Americans who uh, belonged to something 
were up in the 80 percentile. People who belonged to a church and went to meetings, that's how they measured belonging. Did you go to meetings? Did you carry a role? Did you carry a responsibility? They belonged to church and they went to meetings. They belonged to a union and they went to meetings. They belonged to a civic organization and they went to meetings. They belonged to a bowling league and they went to meetings. The 1960s were the height of American joining. We showed up to meetings. People expected us to show up and we showed up. We took turns as officers helping uh, organize the meetings. We took turns being officers in the PTA, all of us organizing stuff for the rest of us who would then in their turn organize stuff for us. We were joiners. We joined the churches and the bowling leagues and the supper clubs and the Kiwanis and the Elks and the Shriners. We joined, we were joiners. And when our nation shifted to that collective focus and moved toward the individual focus, we slowly stopped joining. We slowly stopped protecting the commons. We slowly stopped prioritizing the common good. And we began to focus on individual rights and individual freedom and individual liberty and lost sight of the collective. And in the shuffle, we lost joining. The number of people who join now, again measured by going to meetings, taking on a responsibility, down from the 80 percentile to the tens. Joining now means sending a check. We join a group and we send a check to the group. We don't show up for it. Uh, running, this, running for school board, which I'm doing right now, has been eye-opening for me. Because I know history, I know the words. I knew the word precinct, I knew the word precinct captain. What I didn't realize is that there's a whole network of people out there uh, who are assigned to an area around a local voting place whose job is to get out the vote, whose job is to hold meetings, whose job is to assign tasks, whose job is to commit to each other, to host candidate forums, to drop off literature at houses, to knock on doors, to have get to know you uh, uh, picnics and things like that, to help the neighbors get to know each other. Well, because I've stepped into that world, I see it. And it feels like a throwback to another time. Uh, Now, because I've been to those meetings, however, I realize what we've lost that we don't do that. I bet you don't know about your precinct either. I bet you don't know who your precinct captain is. I bet you don't go to meetings. I bet you've never been to one of the cookouts. I bet you've never gone to one of the candidate forums. I know because when I've been there, there are like 22 people there. (laughs) And I've seen what happens in these meetings. And what I've seen is human beings connecting to each other. What I've seen is human beings having companionship with one another. I've seen people who moved into town who don't know anybody showing up to volunteer and as a result of that being integrated into uh, relationships with people. I've seen people working side by side with other people and talking about their lives as they do. And I've seen, sadly, what we lost to the sands of time when we lost joining. Our shifting priorities, our shifting emphasis, boy, it corrected a big problem. But we also lost something precious. We lost together. We lost something precious. You're also aware that I have been meeting with a lot of churches looking for a new home for us. And as I have done, as I've done that, I've seen our American history in the architecture of our churches. Whenever you see a big steeple in town, I can tell you what you are probably seeing. 
odds are you're seeing a building that was once the chapel that was built in the late 40s because the war was over and people who had fought for democracy now came home to participate in democracy. And for that, they, that meant that they came back to join stuff. They came back to be involved in stuff, and they did. And one of the main things they joined, one of the main things they got involved in with, was church. So the first thing they did was build a place to be together, and it was the chapel. We are sitting in one of them right now. If you look at the little placard right there, so it was built in 1949. Most of the chapels in this city were built right after the war. And then, you also know a little bit about our history, they started having babies. They began to have the baby boom. And sure enough, if you go all over town, you will see a whole bunch of places that have a chapel, and then usually a, a right next to it or right behind it is a children's wing because they started having babies. And sure enough, until we moved downstairs up there, that was the children wing, and it was built in the 50s because sure enough, that's what happened, and that's how the process went. Then when joining hit its peak sometime in the 60s, uh, we began to build large sanctuaries. Look at that right over there. There's one with a great big steeple on it. Anytime you see a great big steeple, that means 40s had a chapel, 50s had a children's wing, 60s had a great big sanctuary. Some of those stretched into the 70s. When you drive around our city, that is the pattern you will see, 40s, 50s, 60s. Human beings joining, then declining in their joining, so that now most of those big sanctuaries sit very underutilized. One of the other reasons I thought it was so important that we meet at a church and not go spend money to build out space. So our shift to individual rights solved one problem, an important problem, an individual suffocation problem. But anytime you swing on a pendulum, you don't go from out of balance to balance, you tend to go from out of balance to counterbalance, and you go too far down that path, we create another problem. We corrected, and then we overcorrected. We adjusted, and then we overadjusted. And now, our culture is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness, particularly among our old folks and our youngest folks. And our culture is experiencing an epidemic of young people alienated, not feeling their belonging, going in and shooting up their schools. And our culture is not able to make our marriages work because we are disconnected from an older generation that has more experience who can help uh, the younger people make their marriages work. And we've lost the capacity to work with people who think differently than we think. We are gullible to marketers who are trying to sell us outrage because we are not in community with the others that they are telling us we should be outraged against. And so this whole process is happening because when you swing on a pendulum and go to counterbalance, you create another problem by solving one. Now our problem now is that we are ignoring the health of the commons. We are willing to get to destroy the national fabric in order to make sure our tribe wins. We suffer the consequences of going too far down this, and one of the things that gets lost along the way is joining. Now, <clears throat> we don't know anymore the things that are required for joining. We've kind of lost those skill sets. Commitment is one of them. 
We said at the very beginning of our times together as a congregation, commitment is for us the C word. (laughs) We don't use it. And the reason we didn't use it is because it had been so overused and so drummed into people and so pounding on the head of people that we just knew we couldn't use it. Commitment was a bad word. And you probably feel it inside. Commitment feels bad. It feels like a burden. It feels like something being imposed upon us. It feels like a hassle because we don't know how to do commitment anymore because our cultural shift then is one of the headwinds that we now experience. We grow up in it. And we don't know how to prioritize collective time over individual time. Partly it's because Netflix is offering us an algorithm that makes us click, 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 and stay there and do more stuff and look at social media more. There are options out there, but we've also lost the sense, the interior sense that we prioritize together time. We don't go to meetings. We don't talk to strangers. We don't put ourselves into social environments. We don't do that as much as we used to do because it feels like a hassle. It feels like a burden. But that's not true. It's just a cultural headwind. It's one of the instincts that we collectively carry together. We've lost the mutuality of serving other people who will in turn serve us. We've lost the art of interdependence. We've lost the art of mutual care and well-being. Now again, that's not what this lesson's about, this mini-week lesson. It's not about joining, though joining is a good thing for us to consider because we really have lost that art. But it's about how easy it is to fall into a system of overcorrection. How easy it is when the society shifts in in solving one problem to fall into the creating of another problem. So, it's easy to fall into by solving a social pain or meeting a social need or taking advantage of a social opportunity. It's easy to fall into the correction that being human beings leads us to the overcorrection that causes us to lose something precious, lose something valuable. What that does is it makes one of the essential skills for a healthy spiritual life, one of the essential skills for healthy spiritual well-being the art of reclaiming. Reclaiming becomes becomes an essential ingredient of being a healthy human being. Figuring out what we lost, figuring out why we lost it, and figuring out how we can reclaim it. And that's the lesson that we're starting right now. What we lost, what we did to lose it, and how we could get it back. I've got six topics on my list. I suspect by the time we finish, I'll have 10 because you will say stuff (laughs) and then I will have to extend the lesson to make it a little bit longer. But that's where we're going to start. What did we lose? What did we lose when we lost it? And how do we get it back? All right. So Dwelling Divine, may ours be a spiritual journey with all the tools we need, including the tool of reclaiming. Amen. Well, if you would, please prepare your offering. Uh, We all give online now. If you go to our website, go to the top, there's a donate button, and you'll see that there are lots and lots of ways to give. If you're here in Raleigh, or if you're joining us from far away, we do invite you to take an ownership stake in the community. I will tell you this, you haven't seen it yet, but I've seen it. I saw the report from last month. It was the first time in a long time we went way under budget. And I gotta tell you, this is not the time for us to be going way under budget. (laughs) 
we're about to have some expenses come up. We've got to build some stuff. We've got to, I've, depending on where we go, we're either going to have to build a portable unit or we're going to have to build a stationary unit. We're going to have to build stuff and it's going to cost us money. So this is not the time to be behind. So remember what I say all the time. There is good return when we invest in community because what community does is takes those resources, our love, our energy, our time, and our money and builds something with it and gives it back to us in an amplified way, a context, an environment in which we thrive. So go to our website and uh, donate at the top of the button. Uh, donate button is at the top of the website. Do that. <coughs> and uh, in a moment, we're going to dismiss the folks on the live stream and we'll do what are you thinking here in the room. And those of you online, we invite you to do what are you thinking as well, but to do it on Zoom. There's a link on the front page of our website, and if you've hung in there this long, we're going to tell you the password. It is, get ready, 1417. The first four numbers of our street address, 1417. And online, what are you thinking, is a great way to connect, think more deeply about the lesson, but also to get to know some people. So, hope you'll join. Uh, if you would, let's dismiss the folks online. If you would, put your hand on your heart, and let's remember that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of those things that we call the fruit of God's spirit are in us. And if you would extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities to share what's in us. It's already there with the people that we live and work, the people we go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair, to heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. We. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. You can go to our website, NorthRaleighCommunityChurch.org. The donate button is at the top of the page on your computer's browser, at the bottom on your phone's browser. Thank you.